at the close of World War II, a German pastor by the name of Helmut Thielick stood in the ruins of what was his church building and looked out over a few dozen individuals where formerly there were hundreds who would gather on the Lord's Day. And as he looked out, it was clear in his mind that there was little indication that the world was actually getting better. Before World War II, and especially before World War I, most theologians in the West, most pastors in the West, believed that the world was getting better and better. That the kingdom of God was growing, the gospel was growing, the kingdom was expanding in such a way that soon Jesus would return because the kingdom would get so good in this world that Jesus would return because heaven would essentially look like earth and earth would look like heaven. This theological outlook known as post-millennialism was the dominant position of, as I said, theologians in the West. And then World War I happened. And then World War II happened. And as Pastor Thielich looked out over his congregation, he said to them, who can still believe that we are developing toward a state in which the kingdom of God reigns in the world of nations, in culture, in the life of the individual? The earth has been plowed too deep by the curse of war. The streams of blood and tears have swollen all too terribly. Injustice and bestiality have become a part, have become all too cruel and obvious for us to consider such dreams to be anything but bubbles and froth. And it's easy after World War II and the horrors of World War II see why Thelic and so many other Christians would doubt whether the kingdom of God was actually even at work at all. The war, Holocaust, the rise of communism, evil dictators, the Cold War, it really did look as though our world was growing darker and darker, more godless and more godless. It looked as though the kingdom of God was growing over time to be nothing but a distant dream. Now, if we fast forward to today, it's not hard to be pessimistic about the work of God in our world even today. Especially if we focus on the things going on right around us. We see Christians caving to social pressures to abandon the truth of God's word about things like marriage or gender or sexuality. We see even within the church, entertainment and novelty have replaced the Bible and faithfulness as the primary motivating factors. We see our government from both the right and the left marked by less civility, less charity, less decency than generations prior. We see fewer and fewer elected officials championing biblical values. 
We see our culture drift more and more into secularism and darkness. So given all of that, it's easy to read texts like Luke chapter 13, verses 18 and 21, and wonder, okay, is the kingdom of God actually even at work at all? Is God and his kingdom on the move in our world at all? I thought the kingdom of God was supposed to be growing. I thought Jesus said that he would build his church and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. So given all of that, it's good for us to spend some time focusing on, yes, these four verses this morning. So as we pick up our text, Jesus is in the middle of teaching a crowd of people who followed him. If you look at verse 18, you will see that in your English Bible, the third word in verse 18 is therefore, which might remind you of your days in elementary school when we come across the word therefore, we need to stop and see what it's Therefore, the word therefore is a connecting word. It connects what Jesus is saying here about the kingdom of God and what it's like to what Jesus has already been teaching on and already been saying. So if you scan your eyes all the way back to chapter 12, verse 35, you see that in verse 35 of chapter 12, Jesus begins to kind of turn his focus The aim of his teaching now begins to focus in on calling people to repent and to believe in himself. Ultimately, so that they would be prepared to stand before God one day in judgment. So everything that Jesus says, everything that Jesus does, really from verse 35 of chapter 12, following through even our text this morning is related to that. Notice in verse 35, Jesus says, stay dressed for action, keep your lamps burning. Chapter 13, verses 3 and 5, he calls the people who are listening to repent, he says, or you will likewise perish. And in the section we looked at just this last week, Jesus not only heals a woman, but he points out the hypocrisy of those who were not dressed for action. For those who had not repented and believed, rather they refused to believe that Jesus was the Messiah, which meant that they were like the hypocrites in chapter 12, verse 56, who prided themselves on keeping all of the fence laws, but who failed to turn and actually believe in Jesus. They were like those in chapter 12, verse 58, who failed to settle with the magistrate now, who failed to recognize that there was a window of opportunity right now for them to get right with the Messiah. And yet they did not. As one of our members so helpfully and succinctly put it after last week's sermon, Jesus contrasts the healed with the hypocrites. One reason why the Jewish religious leaders failed to believe that Jesus was the Messiah was because his coming did not fit their expectations. Now They knew all about God's promise to send the Messiah. They knew about God's promises to establish a new kingdom. But when they thought about the kingdom of God, they went back again to King David's glorious kingdom. 
They thought about military conquest and political independence and an end to foreign oppression. In fact, these are the same things, incidentally, that some Christians can get hung up on today. Like it's tempting, isn't it? Even in our day, to think that our mission as Christians should somehow center on earthly governments or political power or social change. But here, Jesus lays out right expectations for what God's kingdom is like. And as Jesus says, it is a kingdom with modest beginnings, but with a glorious fulfillment. Look at verse 18. And Jesus said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? So Jesus is about to tell those who will listen what the kingdom of God is like. And in fact, Jesus talks about the kingdom of God a lot. And when he began his ministry, his central message was, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Later in Luke 17, when Jesus was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he he answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. It's not coming with political power. It's not coming with military independence. Nor will they say, Jesus said, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Later on, when Jesus would stand trial in front of Pilate, Jesus would say, my kingdom is not of this world If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. But before we look at what the kingdom of God is like, which is what Jesus tells us here in this text, it would be good for us to understand what the kingdom of God is. It's always helpful. What is the kingdom of God? There are different ways to define the kingdom of God, different definitions that we could use. But at its core, the kingdom of God is the direct rule and reign of God over and through his people, which accomplishes his saving purposes. The kingdom of God is the direct rule and reign of God over His people and through his people by which he accomplishes his saving purposes. So you might think, well, doesn't God rule and reign over all things? And the answer is yes. God rules and reigns over all things. But the kingdom of God is more specifically the direct rule and reign of God. His rule and reign over or through his people, the church. It's his direct rule and reign over all that is submitted fully to him. It's his rule and reign which accomplishes his saving purposes in the world. This means then that the kingdom of God is made up of people. It's made up of the people of God. And whereas earthly kingdoms have embassies that you can go visit. So if you're in London, you can go visit the American embassy in London. And if you're in Nairobi, you can go visit the American embassy in Kenya 
The kingdom of God has embassies as well. And in fact, you are now seated amidst an embassy of the kingdom of God here in a foreign land. They're called local churches. Every faithful local church is an embassy. It's an outpost of the kingdom of God in a foreign land. And you might think, well, wait, I am an American citizen, and we, last time I checked, are right now in America. We're in the United States, so we're not in a foreign land. But if you are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, if you have turned by faith and are trusting in him alone for the forgiveness of your sin, you are not only justified, you are not only cleansed, but you are also adopted into a new family, into a new citizenship, into a new identity, which means your kingdom citizenship transcends, it supersedes all other citizenships you may have, which means that this identity, this kingdom citizenship of the kingdom of God is your primary kingdom, or it's your primary citizenship means in effect we are an outpost of the kingdom of God in a foreign land. The kingdom of God then has virtually nothing to do with earthly kingdoms or political structures because the kingdom of God exists today everywhere where God's people are, where they gather, where we worship, where we live out our faith, where we share the gospel. And Jesus makes it clear when he begins his ministry that the kingdom of God has come in and through him. That is, the kingdom of God that the people of God had longed for for generations and generations actually arrived and had actually come near to the people through Jesus. Jesus ushers in the kingdom of God at his first coming. Again, remember, the core of Jesus' ministry was this call to the people. Everywhere he would go, he would call to them, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is here. And again, later when Jesus was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus would say, it's not something that you're gonna be able to observe in ways that can be observed. Nor are you gonna say, oh wow, it's here, I'm amazed. Rather, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. It's among you. It is you. It's in the gathering of you. So we know that the kingdom of God has come in Jesus. But that brings up a problem for Jesus' first audience, and it brings up a problem for us. As we look around and we think to ourselves, well, if the kingdom of God is here then what about all the promises of the kingdom that I read about in the Bible of of peace and unity for the people of God? Unity with one another and with creation. And We certainly don't see that in our world. Why doesn't it look like the kingdom of God has come? Why are there still unbelievers? Why do Christians suffer? Why doesn't our world look godlier? It's what the Pharisees were likely asking, the religious leaders in Jesus' day. It's why Jesus, in the midst of calling people to repent and believe in him, stops to address the kingdom of God 
Because it just could be that the reason so many failed to believe in Jesus at his first coming was because he didn't meet their expectations. They expected the kingdom of God to come with power, with magnificent events. And that's not what they were seeing in Jesus' life and in Jesus' ministry, which made them question Jesus' authority. Is he really the Son of God? And so Jesus then gives us verses 18 through 21 to recalibrate their expectations, just as he gives us verses 18 and 20 through 21 to recalibrate our expectations about what the kingdom of God is like. And Jesus does so here by comparing the kingdom of God to two things. Look at verse 19. And what is the kingdom of God like? Verse 19, it is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree. And the birds of the air made nests in its branches. So what is the kingdom of God like? Jesus said the kingdom of God is like a grain of a mustard seed. In Mark 4.31, adds that the mustard seed is the smallest of all the garden seeds. It's so tiny that you can easily miss it. And think smaller than a grain of rice. And yet, when a man sowed mustard seed in his garden, Jesus said it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air came and made nests in its branches. Again, Mark would add that it became the largest of all the garden plants. The point here is contrast. A seed that looks so small, so insignificant that it can be missed can be sown and that same seed becomes so large that the birds of the air find shelter in it, find safety in it, find a home in it. But Jesus isn't done. Verse 20, he compares the kingdom of God to something else. Verse 20, again, he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. So here's another example. What is the kingdom of God like? It's like leaven that a woman hides in three measures of flour and eventually it leavens or it permeates the entire batch. And once again, the point here is contrast. This woman takes just a bit of leaven and she adds it to three measures of flour. A measure is about 50 pounds. (laughs) That's a lot of flour, right? This woman's not just cooking for her family, like think church potluck, right? Huge church cookout. And this is meant to be extreme. Like 50 pounds of flour, Jesus, really? This woman hid a little leaven in 50 pounds of flour? But they all knew what happens when even a little bit of leaven gets into flour. It permeates the entire batch. Eventually, it is all leaven. So we have two examples. Both are about something small that grows to become something large. But notice another similarity in both of these examples. Both the tiny mustard seed and the leaven are sowed or hidden out of sight. That's significant. The man sows the seed in the ground And the woman, Jesus said, hides the leaven in the flour. There's something here about the hiddenness 
of the kingdom of God. It begins small. It begins and it grows almost imperceptibly. You often can't see it working. You can look around and wonder, is the seed actually, is anything actually happening to this seed? Is anything actually happening with this leaven? Is anything actually happening with the kingdom of God? Because it doesn't look like the kingdom is growing. It doesn't look like the kingdom of God is becoming more powerful. Jesus says, eventually it will accomplish its purpose. Eventually it will be undeniable. Now remember, these are people who expected the kingdom of God to come with obvious power, with spectacular signs. But here Jesus says the kingdom of God is not like that. It begins small. It appears hidden. It grows slowly. So from these two examples, I think we can draw some implications, some truths about the kingdom work of God. Let me just offer three this morning. First, the kingdom of God is here. The kingdom of God is in our midst. And we already saw from Scripture where Jesus on multiple occasions told us that the kingdom has now come. Therefore, the kingdom of God is not something we're waiting for. We're maybe waiting for the fullness of the kingdom, and we'll get to that in a few minutes. But the kingdom is already here. It's not some future reality. It's here now. And this can be surprising to us because we don't always see it. We can't always see the way God is at work. But through the church, God is accomplishing his global purposes. Even if on the surface it it appears that nothing is happening. In fact, this is to a large degree what Jesus is teaching us here. There's more that's going on than meets the eye. Like even when it looks like the work of God is small, even when it appears as though the darkness is overtaking the light in our world, that is simply not the case. The kingdom of God is here and it's growing even though it might be hidden even though we don't always see it. The second implication from our text this morning is quite simply that the kingdom of God starts small. Once again, the Jews in Jesus' day expected the kingdom of God to come with dramatic, visible power. They expected a quick victory over Rome. They expected the establishment of a king of their own to sit on the throne and for a return of the glorious days of success that they enjoyed when David was king. And you can imagine the people longing for that day to come. And as we already talked about, there's a temptation for Christians in every generation to merge the kingdom of God with the kingdom of this world. There's a temptation for us as Christians to desire tangible political benefits from the kingdom of God, to think that the kingdom of God can come in greater power, that we can help the kingdom along if we can only get our people into office. That the kingdom of God is somehow thwarted or resisted or slowed down if those people are in office. But the kingdom of God does not work that way. 
to our world's way of thinking, the kingdom of God seems small. It seems powerless. It's often hidden. We can sometimes doubt that the kingdom of God has actually come because it doesn't look like the promised kingdom to come. But this is where it's helpful to remember that according to Jesus, the kingdom of God does not start at maturity. It grows. There's a fullness of the kingdom to come. There is so much yet to come that will be Only when Jesus returns, when he brings heaven to earth, when he at last merges the new heavens and the new earth together and the kingdom of God becomes the kingdom that rules and reigns over all the earth. But in the meantime, friends, we should not become discouraged by the lack of evidence we see for the kingdom work of God in our world. If you read theologians and pastors from just... 150 years ago, so many of them, as I said, expected that the kingdom of God was, was coming. They expected that our world would just get better and better and godlier and godlier until eventually it would just be heaven on earth, heaven on earth and Jesus would return. We kind of chuckle and laugh at that now because we see so much brokenness. Wars and discord. Adversity and crumblings of society and economic struggle. But the kingdom of God is not just confined to God's work in the West. The U.S. does not have a a place as God's favored nation state in this world. But the kingdom of God is a global kingdom. And God is at work in other parts of the world in other ways that we so often don't even see. Just by virtue of the fact that there are more Christians in China today than in the United States ought to give us incredible hope that even in the midst of political and military darkness, God's kingdom can work with power. And so we should not become discouraged by the lack of evidence we see for the kingdom of God at work. Instead, we should continue to trust God. We should continue to be about the work that he's given us to do so that, like the good servants in Luke 12, 43, when the master returns, he finds us faithfully about his work. And we should also, as the church of Jesus Christ, remind each other, especially when things look dark, that the work of God is still growing, that it started small and it's often hidden, but it's at work. Listen to the way the 19th century pastor J.C. Ryle put it. The beginnings of the gospel were exceedingly small. It was like the grain of seed cast into the garden. It was a religion which seemed at first so feeble and helpless and powerless that it could not live. Its first founder was one who was poor in this world and ended his life by dying the death of a malefactor on the cross. Its first adherents were a little company whose number probably did not exceed a thousand when the Lord Jesus left the world. Its first preachers were a few fishermen and publicans who were, most of them, unlearned and ignorant men. Its first starting point was a despised corner of the earth called Judea, a petty tributary province of the vast empire of Rome. 
Its first doctrine was eminently calculated to call forth the enmity of the natural heart. Christ crucified was to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. Its first movements brought down on its friends persecution from all quarters. Pharisees, Sadducees, Jews and Gentiles, ignorant idolaters and self-conceited philosophers all agreed in hating and opposing Christianity. It was a sect everywhere spoken against. And these are no empty assertions. They are simple historical facts which no one can deny. If there ever was a religion which was a little grain of seed at its beginning, that religion was the gospel. The gospel starts small. A third implication from the text, however, is that the kingdom of God grows large. It grows so large that the birds of the air are able to find shelter in it. It grows so large that it eventually leavens the whole batch. And this is the inevitable fulfillment of the kingdom of God. This is what Jesus tells us here. That small kingdom that is so often hidden will grow. It will become a shelter and a home for many. And it will eventually fill the entire world. And we see this truth on display in the book of Acts, don't we? At the beginning of Acts, we have Jesus ascend back to the Father, and there exists only just a small group of believers who trust in him, who are members of his kingdom. And yet, as we move through Acts, what happens? God uses the preaching and the sharing of the gospel to save sinners and to add them into his church. And what we see in the book of Acts is that the kingdom begins to grow. It expands as more and more enter into it. Pastor Mike McKinley writes, The very existence of our faith, separated as we are from Jesus' earthly ministry by great distance in time, gives evidence for what Jesus is teaching. It is the way of God to begin something great in small and unimpressive ways that confound human expectations and vanity. Though the beginnings may seem humble and the growth may seem small, nothing can stop the kingdom of God from spreading through the whole world. Though the opponents of the church may seem fierce and powerful, nothing will prevent Jesus' kingdom from growing. Brothers and sisters, things may appear to get worse and worse over time. It may not seem as though the kingdom of God is actually growing. But one day Jesus will return. And on that day he will inaugurate the full fulfillment of his kingdom and it will be glorious. And on that day, every promise about the kingdom to come will be a reality. On that day, the, the already not yet kingdom will become the already now here kingdom. So, in light of all of this, how should we live? Let me offer four points of application. First, I think in light of what we read here and in light of the context and what Jesus is doing and saying, in light of everything from chapter 12, 35 through this text, we should read these verses and we should recognize that Jesus calls us 
to respond rightly. To respond rightly. We are to discern the times. We are to look at the signs and recognize that Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of God, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. And we should turn and trust in Him. Are you trusting in Him this morning? Have you turned by faith to trust and believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who lived without sin, who died willingly on the cross in the place of all who believe, so that we who believe, believe, who deserve a sinner's death, who deserve eternal separation from God, who deserve a Christless hell, have now been not only saved, not only forgiven, not only justified, not only cleansed, not only made new, but we have been adopted. And if you're not trusting in Jesus Christ this morning, why not? I would encourage you. I would challenge you this morning to consider the claims of Jesus Christ, to consider the life and the death and the resurrection of the Holy Son of God. The second application from our text this morning is that Jesus' teaching guards us from judging the truthfulness or the effectiveness of God's kingdom by what we can see right now. There's a great scene near the end of C.S. Lewis's great book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. The people of the White Witch are engaged in battle with Aslan's people, and Aslan's people appear to be losing the battle. They are losing the battle. There seems to be very little hope left for Aslan's people if Aslan does not come and save the day. And Aslan does come. He arrives on scene, and to Lucy and Susan's incredible relief, Aslan is now here, and they expect that he will take control of the battlefield, and he will lead the people in victory. He will accomplish success, and he will vanquish his foes, but Aslan does not turn towards the battlefield. Aslan turns away from the battlefield. He leaves. He goes out of their sight. And they hopelessly begin to wonder if Aslan even cares at all, if he even realizes at all what they're going through. Like, does he not realize that we are about to lose, that the enemy is about to win, that darkness is about to quench the light? But what they don't see is that Aslan has gone to the White Witch's castle, and he has gone to give new life to those who were turned into stone by the White Witch. And Aslan does return, bringing with him all those who have been set free from the curse of the witch. And Aslan does accomplish full and final victory. But you know, we like Lucy and Susan can look around at our world, can't we? And we can wonder, where is Aslan? Where is God? Where is the kingdom of God? It seems as though things are getting worse. It seems as though the things that we are witnessing around us grow darker and darker. Friends, we should be encouraged. We should not judge the truthfulness nor the effectiveness of God's kingdom based on what we can see 
right around us. Many parts of the world, even today, the kingdom of God is growing in ways that maybe we don't often see. Sometimes we see growth that others don't see. But Jesus here is reminding us that it will look at times as though the kingdom of God is hidden. It will look as though perhaps even that the kingdom of God is failing. But the kingdom of God will grow. It will succeed. Third, Jesus' teaching reminds us of the work which we are given. Notice in our text, a man sows seed in the garden. A woman hides flour or hides leaven in flour. Friends, we are given authority, all authority from Jesus Christ to make disciples of all nations, baptizing and teaching men and women, young and old, to obey everything God has given to us in Scripture. The Christ on whom all authority rests delegates us to go and make disciples, to go and sow seeds of the word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ, to go and like leaven seek to be about the work of God, even in ways that may seem hidden. And this should give us hope. Even when we work faithfully for the Lord and see very little results, you share the gospel over and over again with that family member or that friend and they seem so resistant. We should not lose hope. Even when we try to work or counsel or teach the word of God to a friend or a family member or a classmate or a teammate. It seems as though they're just not catching on or it seems as though they're just not moving beyond what they're struggling with. We should not lose hope. And even when we gather on Sunday mornings in some of these rooms next door and we teach the little ones who are high on energy and low on patience, And we get done and we pack up our things and we put our stuff in our bag and the classroom is once again quiet as all the kids have gone home. And we wonder to ourselves, maybe in that moment, I wonder if it makes a difference at all. Friends, we should not lose hope. There is always more going on than we can see. There's more going on than meets the eye. It may be hidden. It may appear tiny. But the kingdom work of God is never wasted. Finally, Jesus' teaching gives us confidence that in the end, God and his people will be fully victorious. Another way of saying this is that in the end, God wins. Christ wins. And we who are in Christ win as well. Not because of us, not because we have accomplished the victory, but because Jesus Christ has already accomplished the victory. In the end, death will be defeated and sin will be no more. And in the end, the only thing that will exist in the new heavens and the new earth will be the things of God, which should give us confidence and courage. Like We may suffer in this life, We may labor and labor and labor, and it seems as though the kingdom work of God doesn't get any traction that we can see with our own eyes. We may actually die in this life before God's kingdom is fulfilled at Christ's return, but it's coming. 
And it's coming, and we know that it's coming because Jesus went to the cross. He sacrificed his body. He shed his blood. He died and rose again to accomplish a sure victory for all who belong to him. And we're going to celebrate that sacrifice this morning in the Lord's Supper. And we're going to celebrate the fact that Jesus, by giving his body and by shedding his blood, he achieved the victory. He saved those who believe.